Adam Angst, welcome. This is the first time. I can't believe that. It's my fault. But welcome to the talk show. <laughs> I, I, it's been way too long, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So, speaking of too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The motivating factor, the, hey, let's make this happen event that has gotten us here is that Tidbits just celebrated its 30th anniversary. Yes. Which is I, it's, crazy. I believe the word is inconceivable. And yes, it does mean what you think it means. So in some ways, I mean, you know, it's like my mom always said. My mom, uh, I forget how old she is. I guess I shouldn't even say, but she's not that old. But, you know, uh, but she said this forever. Like as she hit, you know, big milestones like 50 and, and 60 and stuff like that, that, you know, she's always had the mindset that, look, you either hit these milestones or you don't. And that means you're dead. <laughs> So it's only <laughs> it's only good news, right? I mean, either either tidbits eventually turned thirty, or tidbits went away, and it's obviously it's a fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, but it is. But what, what makes tidbits different and unique is that by by having been started in 1990, it literally predates. It's an it's an online only publication with 30 years of continuous publication under its belt that predates the web. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that newfangled web, I remember when that started. So, I mean, I remember when we first got our, we got our first website in 1996, and it was actually hosted for us at Dartmouth by a guy named Andy Affleck, who I'm still friends with to this day. So how – and, you know, I, I bet there are a fair number of people listening who, if not going back to the original, you know, issue one in 1990, at least remember those early 90s pre-web times. But I'm sure that most people listening don't. Just It's just the nature of it. So how, how – let's just start there. I mean, honestly, <laughs> let's just start with the early days. I mean – how did how did you publish an online publication before the web? <laughs> it's it's amazing to think about. So uh, keep in mind the first ninety nine issues, ninety nine weeks of tidbits were published in HyperCart. So it wasn't even text. And we every week we I, I imported what we wrote into HyperCard, HyperCard stack, and then I had to stuff it and bin hex it, and then send it out on the internet. Now, what did sending it out on the internet mean? We had a initially the first couple of issues we had a mailing list, and that crashed a Navy Vax in San Diego. <laughs> Because, get this, I had put more than 256, one of those special computer numbers, more than 256 addresses in the two-line. <laughs> <laughs> Cornell's, Cornell's mainframe operators were not tremendously impressed with me. <laughs> so one of, like, one of the things about being a computer user back then was that 
even if you weren't a programmer type, you became very familiar with those magic computer numbers that it didn't seem, yes. it didn't seem random at all that when you had 255 people, it was fine. And when you had 256, <laughs> it broke. You were like, Oh, of course so they, they were putting those, they were counting them in a bite. <laughs> There's there's a wonderful story. There's a, there's a, a fabulous book. I, I should go back and look at it at some point called The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder. And it's about, uh, I think, a data general mini computer. And he tells a story like this, you know, where, where it's like it fails in some way and it's like, oh, well, just go change the number in the code. <laughs> <laughs> and but yes, you, stuff like that happened. Um, so so yeah. So we 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 were we started a, we we had to move off of the uh, distribute distributing via email for a while. Um, and um, but I I managed to make friends with um, people that I called the time the net heavies, mm. and they were just people at universities who. They were more important than other people. And it wasn't quite clear why, usually. I mean, they were CS professors or computer administrators or whatever, but they were the people who made things happen. And if they said you could do something, you could do something. And if they didn't want you to do it, it didn't happen. And it was like, and, and I said, the, I use the term net heavies because they weren't elected or anything like that. They just somehow ended up in that position. And so, working with some of them, I managed to get um, be able to upload tidbits to the InfoMac Digest mm. uh, or InfoMac Archives, and then it was it was shared out of the InfoMac Digest. Uh, and uh, and and also, I mean, gosh, this, the neurons firing in my head right now. We were uploading to various uh, bulletin boards and online services and things like that, and it was all by hook or by crook. I couldn't pay for any of this. I didn't have any money. Um, so it was like I had to, you know, but if you traded things, if you said, oh, I'm going to provide you with this content, you could often get free accounts or whatever. And so, yeah, for those first couple of years, there was a whole lot of, um, you know, friends doing friends favors. The InfoMac archive slash digest was, for me, the Apple inner well if not the apple at, at that time yeah i guess it, it predates the newton actually but the mac was apple and oh, apple yeah. was the mac uh actually the, the apple II still had its last legs in some ways i mean but i don't think it was ever part of the the mac internet because you couldn't uh, I, I say couldn't because and i i put that in quotes because i'm sh sure that there were some people <laughs> Because <laughs> it, it, it was the time when people would figure out crazy stuff like how do you get an Apple II GS onto the internet even though there's no you know etc. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not yeah, gonna yeah. say no. And people and people did do that, but it was yeah it was crazy and it was it was a different subset. I mean those were they were completely different computers right. and the two worlds didn't mix much there, uh, <laughs> from what I remember. <laughs> we could get to the Macintosh Internet Starter Kit, but there was no Apple II Internet Starter Kit book. <laughs> Hey, it was amazing enough that we managed to get the Mac on the internet. <laughs> um, but the InfoMac archive was like, and there were all sorts of news groups on Usenet that I that that I followed religiously and and stayed up to date. But if you if you could only have one thing 
it was yeah. InfoMac because if you had well, InfoMac, it, you you got all you know. If there was software being released as shareware or freeware, and you could download it from an FTP site, and there was a new version, it was if it wasn't on InfoMac as a as an it didn't it exist. didn't exist. Yeah, and you could either get it post by post depending on you know and i i think whether you wanted it post by post sort of depended how you got it you know like if you got it by email you probably didn't want it post by post it was too many emails but on usenet it wasn't fine because then it was all in one group and you could just go through but the digest was like i forget was it a daily digest you know i, I i'm trying to remember how busy it but was. what was interesting about it was yes yeah, a little bit how busy things were i think it was dial daily but Keep in mind, it was also moderated. Right. It wasn't a free-for-all. Right. And the, I mean, to be an InfoMac moderator was a big deal. And there were also, you know, archivists, people who actually managed the file uploads and made sure everything was named reasonably and organized well and things like that. So, yeah, this was back at, this, and this is also back in the days of the user groups being huge forces. You know, yeah. when BMUG, um, BMUG had 50,000 users. Yeah. You know, so there were people who would dedicate themselves to these tasks because they saw it as this incredible opportunity to provide something for a really pretty large and vibrant community who you saw and heard from. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, there's many more users now, but it's somehow it's much more amorphous. I remember... I, uh... My memory, it's, my memory is like 85% there and 15% not there. I don't remember the name of the Drexel user group. I think it was, damn, what was it? It was something, everybody was, every, everything was something mug, Macintosh user group. And without the mug, you wouldn't even know it was a Macintosh user group. It might have been just DMUG or the, we were the Drexel Dragons. It might have been the Drag, I, I forget, but Drexel had a Macintosh user group. And my freshman year in 1991, I wandered in eventually and Drexel had a great Drexel was uh, of this era was absolutely fantastic as somebody who was a budding Mac nerd because Drexel was part of this pilot program in the late eighties where they worked with mm, Apple the consortium. Yeah. 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 And, University consortium. And, and they had a policy that every, you didn't have to own a Macintosh. I mean, college, even in the early 90s, was expensive enough. <laughs> but you had to have access to a Macintosh. And that, that was simple enough because even if you didn't own one, they had a lab full of them that, that had so met, so plentiful with Macintoshes that you could sit down in front of that it, it was never, even at like the end of semesters, you know, when you would think it might be the hardest time to get time on one, there was always free ones wow, available. Really? Well, and I think the reason why was that they had such an aggressive education pricing thing and they did kind of encourage freshmen. They, 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 it was, they, they delicately balanced. Right. You don't have to buy one, but you really ought to buy your kid one. And so just about, I, I don't, I, my freshman year, I did not know anybody who didn't buy one. Other, so you're, you're a little younger than I am then, because I graduated from Cornell in 89. Right. And so Tanya and I were in charge of public computer rooms at Cornell, and we definitely had, waiting lines right. and things like that. I mean, you could, I mean, certainly you could buy them at the, at the university, you know, at the discount, but it wasn't common enough yet. Well, so it sounds like just in that, like, you know, you know, couple of year periods when it, when it transitioned. Well, the big weight, the big, I, and you know, and anybody else who was at Drexel at that time is going to call me on it. The big weight was for the laser printers. <laughs> 
now if oh yeah yeah and and that <laughs> and that absolutely cor- corresponded to the end of uh semesters because of course that's when you know yeah. there might you you know you might have stuff due all throughout the semester but everybody has stuff due at the end of the semester and anybody who had any two cents to rub together you know like like the deal I got as a freshman I got a Mac LC and it it came with a freestyle writer free it was just thrown mm-hmm. in and it was a great education discount price so why not take it and the style writer wasn't bad so i had a you know but it was kind of a waste because every single freshman also got one so we had like two style writers in every dorm room like <laughs> like <laughs> and you could still hear them now yeah <laughs> but like a it was slow and b you know it's you know, it still was a janky early yeah. days inkjet. Matrix, I mean, if yeah. you, I mean, I wanted laser. I wasn't oh, going to submit my papers oh, yeah, yeah. without Sorry. laser printed output. But anyway, um, right, right. Uh, we, uh, it was yeah. a great lab, and they had they had site licenses for uh, all the. I don't even think it was branded Claris yet, but you know, MacWrite and MacDraw and MacPaint, everything like mm, that. Mm-hmm. You could just all you needed we was a right blank now. floppy disk. Mm-hmm. Come in and and then you could get them all. Totally legit, straight up legal uh, site license for the whole university. But there was already hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, you know, I guess thousands is a fair way of saying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shareware (laughs) titles, games and utilities and goofy stuff. And when I wandered into the the Macintosh users group and found out that they had all of it. And all you had to do is bring yes. in floppies. I was like, <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> and you bought those boxes of like 10 floppies at a time. And it was just like, wow, I could put so much stuff on this. It was all of my money. All of my money when I was in college. All of it went to long distance phone calls. Because Amy Amy was in <laughs> Pittsburgh and I was in Philadelphia. And calling across the state of Pennsylvania was yep. like $10 a minute. <laughs> Uh, long distance phone calls, <laughs> compact discs, and floppy disks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all communications. Yeah, just you know, you know, asynchronous and synchronous. <laughs> uh, and the pack, yeah. the pack rat in me didn't want to overwrite floppies. You know, there were some things that you knew you could just overwrite. Like if you just wanted to print yeah. out a thing, well then you'd you'd bring it back. But it's like, well, I don't want to get rid of this weird version of Tetris. I I, I want I, I need a new floppy disk. <laughs> Well, so again, being just a little bit earlier at Cornell, um, what you you had a couple of floppies because you could put the system and as we used right now um, for a word processor that was our site licensed one, great little word processor, and you could put so your system and your application and your documents on a single floppy, eight hundred k floppy, and so you'd have a couple of floppies that you just carry around with you at all times because then you could stop in a computer room and work on your file, you know, print if you needed to, that kind of stuff, and. Uh, I still have um, Tanya and I had had, had a pair of floppies, uh, um, which are still called Ziggy. You know, I still have them on my, on my table here. They're called Ziggy and Stardust. So it's very much the time. But uh, your 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 concept comment about the uh, names of the Mac user groups reminded me there were some pretty good ones. Um, and uh, Ithaca's Ithaca's group was called Mugwump, mm. which was indeed an acronym for the Macintosh User Group for Writers and Users of Macintosh Programs. Oh. Which is pretty good. And then Seattle's was Debug for Downtown Business Users Group. Hmm. 
So, you know, so we're a few that, that managed to break the trend. And there's been a few others. Uh, Rochester had apple cider, and I don't know what that one. I remember I don't that. know how that expanded. Yeah, that was a big one. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. As it was such a such a change. I mean, you know, from now, you know, there's there's user groups hanging on, um, and I love I love them dearly. You know, I go visit periodically at various ones, but uh, it's a it's a different scene. Yeah, because it's what's it, it it's like voluntary. It's purely social. Whereas oh, back yeah. then, it was yeah. you, you could be totally. It's, I don't want to say antisocial, but you could have no interest in any kind of camaraderie with others, but you'd want to be an active yep. member because otherwise you wouldn't find out what the hell was going on. Well, and companies like WordPerfect and Microsoft would come to Cornell yep. to speak to this group of 30 or 40 people. <laughs> I mean, like the biggest companies in the world would show up to demo. And I still remember that WordPerfect guy throwing little bags of M&Ms during his demo to keep people awake um, because he, you, you wanted the M&Ms. And, you know, and he was a pretty good presenter, too. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, yeah. So the in- <laughs> so very different years Infomac, back in those days. The InfoMac archives moderated. It was essential. It was, so it was zero noise. I mean, it might be you know it might be an update yeah. to a utility that you didn't care about, but you didn't feel like oh that that shouldn't be here. I mean, I, I don't think there was yeah. ever once anything that got posted to InfoMac that made it through the moderation that you you know felt like virus checking everything. Right. It was all good. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a, I mean, I'm still rem- remembering, there was a guy named Bill Lippa, um, and actually John Pugh, who I'm still in touch with, he was one of the monitors for a while. Um, so yeah, but I have to go back and back into the depths of my email, although I honestly don't have a lot of email from the early 90s. Uh, my, my email archives start a little bit later than that. It's, uh, well, I, but, so how big were the hypercard issues? I mean, because... It, 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 <laughs> not very yeah that was things they had to be small right. because you had to get stuff um um well actually I take that back um i don't remember how large the files were i do remember that once we switched to text because we had the structure enhanced text format that we came out with issue 100 that 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 was you know sort of where you took some of that stuff and when you were working on markdown we can get to that. very similar kind of stuff <laughs> we'll get to that but um but once we went to text all the issues had to be under 30k right because there were internet gateways that freaked out at of course 32k but you couldn't ever guarantee that it was really going to be 32 so you always went, I always went to 30 and so yeah they are the the thing that was interesting about the hypercard archives though hypercard stacks was they could archive themselves into a single stack. Mm. So you'd get a new one, you'd download a new one each week, and then you'd click a button in it. I was so proud of this. You'd click a button in it, and it would archive itself into the stack that you selected. So you'd have this single Uber archive of every tidbits issue that was fully searchable and all of that. It's, it was a big switch going from hypercard to plain text. And that's what the C-text. Yeah. How do you pronounce it? I always pronounce it C-text. C-text. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, it is C-text. And there, so there was, There's a remarkable there a word in my history that I took a <laughs> guess how to pronounce it was right. <laughs> in, in that case, in this case, it was uh, it was specific because the, the guy who, who came up with most of it, a guy named Ian Feldman, who has disappeared entirely i mean he disappeared quickly like i never heard from him i don't know more than a year or so after that um but he was very particular about things like pronunciation mm. and he said it's c-text I'm like, okay <laughs> we're going with that the, the big difference is so I, i'm i'm gonna even if you don't remember hypercard everybody kind of knows it was a very early hyper text system graphical 
it was sort of a combination of an early predecessor to the web in terms of being hypertext and hyperconnected, and also a very early uh, sort of uh, easy to use programming environment. Yes. And yes. visually, software erector right. set was the was the term. You know, and and with a a programming language that really only could be compared to AppleScript, you know, that HyperTalk was very, you know, it was at a time when everybody, not everybody maybe, but a lot of people thought that was the key to making programming more accessible to more people was to make it the syntax look like English syntax. Um, But people were incredibly productive in it. There were people who were non-programmers who wrote amazing things in HyperCard that honestly, and I don't want to make this whole episode about hyper hypercard, but to this day, I don't think that there's a a, a replacement no. that is as neat and as accessible to to more people as hypercard. It was also very, very Macintoshy in terms of the the <laughs> spirit of Macintosh, you know, which was only the whole platform was only six years old in 1990. You know, it was still relatively new. It was you know, way newer than even, you know, it was like about the age then of Apple Watch. Now, Apple Watch just turned five, you know. So think about how new well, Apple Watch hi- is now. That's how new the Mac and hi- was. And HyperCard was also developed by Bill Atkinson, who, who was like one of the key right. Macintosh developers. So like this was his vision right. of what the Mac could be. And, you know, I have to say, we compare it to AppleScript, HyperTalk to AppleScript, there's no comparison. Yeah. HyperTalk was way easier, way more understandable for people who didn't have a programming background. Right. And the things that people made with it were astonishing. Yeah, it really was. And nothing has ever, ever come to that ever that level ever again. And, and there's great stuff like Supercard and um, Live Code Now and whatnot that are kind of similar, but... They've never quite gotten to that level of elegant simplicity. Um, I, I'll just just to name one example. I remember I had a, a calculus teacher at Drexel who, I mean, number one, he was a very smart guy. He was he was like one of the heads of the Department of Mathematics at Drexel. So I mean, he was obviously you know not a dummy, but he was a mathematician, not a programmer or computer scientist. He had for his uh, like freshman level calculus courses hypercard stacks that he himself had written and they were extremely graphical and i remember uh, a i really was uh, i was pretty good at math going into college but like you know really ran up against it (laughs) even my freshman year (laughs) so it was the calculus itself was like man i gotta get out of this um i gotta i gotta take as little of this as possible but the the mac nerd in me was blown away by i was like this guy is not even a programmer you know it's like this is amazing and they were very graphical and they did and they were animated you know the you know aspects of calculus like the way curves approach a limit it was like the approaching the limit was animated this guy's not a programmer he didn't like have a grad student from the computer science department build these for him he just did this on his own in the way that college professors spend time on course materials he built software that was incredibly cool and it really was useful it was not like a gimmick like oh the guy was also a hobbyist on the mac and and wasted time on this it it really did help illustrate 
the material. It was good. It was good stuff. And I don't know how he would do it without HyperCard. There was no way he was going to do it. He wasn't going to drop into Pascal or C and write real applications to do it. It required a level of expertise that you couldn't expect from a math professor. And afterwards, after HyperCard faded away, nothing really took that spot. Um, but then, so my point though is that going for, from zero to ninety-nine tidbits as a HyperCard stack was extremely Macintoshy. The fact that you could get a new issue and have it within your instance of HyperCard on your Mac collapse into the same stack, and you'd collect the issues there—a super Macintoshy-like idea, right? right? Like, <laughs> like, like, like part of what it meant to be a Macintosh, Mac-like back then was elegance, elegance in computing. You know, and and not yes. to go, we could any one of these could be a two hour rant on our own. But the fact that Mac files, you just you had in hindsight is another one of those numbers. You had thirty one characters, so you were up to thirty two. You know, thirty two is one of those magic numbers. But you could use any characters you wanted. You know, you could put spaces in your file yep. names. Nobody used file name extensions except for files you'd share over the internet, like a stuff it archive. Um, Yep. And then only f it was, you know, because you were leaving the Macintosh universe and putting it in, putting it somewhere where, you, you know, it needed that. Um, it, going to plain text with C text was sort of a, I, I get why you did it. I think it was probably the right way because it was more, you know, plain text is the universal format it still is to this day in 2020. Um, <laughs> but it was sort of a concession to the practicality of plain text versus the magical elegance of something like HyperCard. Yeah, indeed. And I think what I ran into, and I, I honestly don't remember the thinking behind the switch all that well. I mean, this was 1992. Um, but I think... Well, I had made one mistake in the HyperCard stack, which caused it to grow too large, larger than it needed to on each import. And there was no way to fix, no way to back patch that um, for various reasons. And so that was one thing that was bothering me about the stack. But I think what it came down to was it felt like uh, I could just reach so many more people because there were a lot of Mac users whose Macs couldn't connect to the internet in any way, mm -hmm. shape, or form. That they they could read email at work, right. um, or they could telnet in to read, use Elm or Pine or whatever, but there was just no way they could get a hypercard stack from that point onto their Mac. Yeah. Because we didn't, really, this really is 1991, 1992, and it's not easy to get on the internet. In any way, shape, or form, and so you know that's why again we 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 distributed to Apple Link and Bix and CompuServe and Delphi and Genie and did I get them in alphabetical order? Woo. <laughs> um, so you know basically every imaginable um, online service because that was in many ways an easier way to get files than the internet. And it there is something, and it's to this day. Literally, as we speak, there's like this really nice resurgence in newslet email newsletters. Yes. And uh, what makes them resurgent today is what made them nice in 1992 also, where even if you could get the bin hex stuff it file of the stack to your Mac fairly easily, nothing beat 
there it is in your email tidbits issue one and 10 and you click it and there you are and you're reading and now you're just space bar, space bar, space bar, space bar. And you go down. It's right there, right? The fact that it's yeah. right there, yeah. here it is. And truth be told, part of, you know, the, the essence of tidbits from the get go has been the writing. It is. Yes. It, we had no graphics for many, many years. I was actually trying to think about that. Like, I don't remember when we first started putting graphics and we started linking to them before we could put them in, of course. I mean, we'd have like a, literally a URL so you could click to go see the graphic. I sympathize. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. yeah so. It, it, you can't, but, you can't but, beat that convenience. Or, you know, maybe you read in uh, the Usenet, you know, and, and the Usenet experience was very much like re if, if you were going in through a uh, you know, Telnet, yep. you know, it was purposefully very similar to using Elm or Pine or whatever your email client was. There was only, you know, arrows to go up and down to select groups or mailboxes. You go in, there's a message, and then you read the message, and there it is. And if tidbits could be right there, there you are. You're reading it. Spacebar, spacebar, go down. The 32K thing, though, is, also, is fascinating. <laughs> we also didn't have the, the – the, there was a switch away from the Macintoshiness of – hypercard but we didn't lose all of that hmm. and that was thanks to an application called easy view oh which was i a remember that viewer yeah. written by a guy named akif eiler who was turkish and and he's still around i heard from him just a few months ago and he, he i forget how we met um, but you know, I he, I think he was starting in on this on, on a, a text a file viewer, and I said, "Hey, would you like to support C text?" And he's like, "Oh, that's so cool! Can you give me the spec?" And so we share, and and he did, and so it was great because you could get right back to that elegance of like everything in your Easy View archive, right? And but he also built in support for other formats too, so you could have other. Easy view documents that would, you know, like index InfoMac archives, right. in fact, right. because those were MBox formats. Right. And and so, but that gave us all of that kind of browsability and archivingness. Keep in mind, my mother was Cornell University archivist for many years, so archives are in my blood. <laughs> and, um, but at the same time, as you say, the ease of its email, you just look at it and you can read right then and there. It, yeah, I do remember EasyView, and I remember using it. I think what I used to do uh, as the sort of borderline obsessive compulsive pack rat <laughs> was I would I would read a new issue of Tidbits, however I first saw it, you know, whether it was email or Usenet, you know, and I would like look both places so I could read it right away. But then eventually I would download it so that I'd keep every issue archived in EasyView. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and one of the things that I remember from those days also, and I'd be curious, I'm going to have to go back and look, see how long I kept this up. But keep in mind, we ha the, the magazines were a big deal, Macworld, MacUser, MacWeek. And they had reviews, but there was no index. Mm -hmm. And so every issue of Tidbits, I would actually have a quote-unquote article that was a list of the products that were reviewed in the magazines that I'd received. <laughs> so if you wanted to know what, you know, where there was a review of Microsoft Word 6 or 5 or yeah. 5.1, whatever version it was at that point, if you searched in your archive, you would actually find out that, you know, Mac user of January of 1992 had that 
review in it as well and you could actually like probably go to a library or maybe you got right. it on your shelf you had it on your shelf but you could never find it in there so that was another kind of you know thing we did to bridge the the digital analog gap i've i've told this story before but i i wanted a subscription to mac week so bad <laughs> but but the idea was and and like if you're young enough this is going to seem crazy but there were like two types of print period print periodicals of the time. The monthly magazines were just regular magazines and the big two big ones here in the US were Macworld and MacUser. Uh and you you know you could either subscribe like you subscribe to any magazine today or get them on the newsstand and and that was that and you just bought them. Macweek was a trade publication and trade publications <laughs> were not sold on newsstands. <laughs> and and you couldn't, no matter what, you couldn't just say, "Well, here's take my money, here's my credit card, send me a subscription." You 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 had to, <laughs> you had to like apply and give them your credentials for how you were in the trade, you know. And so if you were, do you do you remember the size of those application forms? Because they were tabloids, yes. and it was a full page of really tiny little boxes. Yes. You had to fill them all in. Yeah, I, and you had to lie through your teeth. I rem- of course, I remember <laughs> to my utmost shame. I I remember because I applied several times i and i even thought maybe they're keeping track of my name i tried like under a fake name (laughs) (laughs) and i never never heard back never heard back from from them oh really so for years i had to read maybe you didn't lie well i had to read maybe you didn't lie well i guess but i i like to think of myself as a talented liar so I, I it, that's why I'm ashamed of it. I mean, I made up job titles. I said that I worked. I I like looked up real businesses, but like the problem was, <laughs> the, the problem always was that like I could I could figure out a way that would make it look like my I had a job or worked at a company or whatever. But like, how do you fake a mailing address? Like, I still needed it mailed to me. <laughs> Like it's pretty yeah. obvious why the ones I had sent to dorms at Drexel didn't work. Getting it sent to my parents' the, home was no good because I didn't go home often enough. You know what I mean? What good would it have been? And <laughs> I don't know that that would have worked anyway, but what good is it getting 20 issues of Mac week at Thanksgiving? You know, like that's right. Good. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that was always, and you know, apartments were never, I, I think it was always the mailing address that gave, gave me away. Interesting. But, so that was the only I, reason I, I ever went we to got- the Drexel library ever. I, I don't remember ever going for classwork. I just, but they had a Mac Week subscription, and so once a week I would go into the library at Drexel and and read read Mac Week. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember having an issue with the addresses, but it may just have worked out for me. Um, but but you know, I worked at Cornell as a student, and in the in the CIT, the computer, Computing Information Technology, Cornell Information Technology, and so yeah, you would lie on the application form, like <laughs> pretending you were Cornell. Right, because I was in charge of hundreds of Macs, right. if you counted all the public rooms that I was in charge of, and um, and so I got Mac Week and Info World and PC Week um, because yeah. you know those were the and and they were they were big. Yep. They were like you know, you know they could be you know forty or fifty pages a week, yep. um, on, and and they were fabulous because this was also the time when you wanted to read the ads. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right? The ads were partly why you got it. Yep. Um, so, and I did, I did, I did remember when I finally, you know, a couple of years later, when I started meeting the people who actually worked at Mac Week, and and hearing their stories, and what they said was, is that they basically just worked harder 
than all of the the PC uh, publications. Mm. And that was because they they had no resources and et cetera, et cetera. But they all loved what they were doing and just you know did more. And that was that was because the, the Mac Week was always a step above InfoWorld and PC Week. Yeah, I you know, they were so really too. corporate. And um, and so the Mac Week did have to appeal to what they called the volume buyers, um, all the people they uh, were were giving it to, so they could get the ads. But uh, and I, I remain fascinated by the fact that huge publications there was there was a massive advertising market, despite the fact that there was far less money in the ecosystem. Right. And I, I I've never figured out how that has has you know. We've got so much more money in the ecosystem, and advertising is so much less of a part of it now. I don't know either. I, I can only guess that part of it, and whenever there's, you know, every periodically somebody will stumble upon their stash of old Mac Weeks or Mac users or any, you know, yeah. PC publications in their closet or their basement and scan a few ads. And the one thing that jumps out to you is how much more expensive everything was. You know, it would, True. you know, somebody had True. like a thing where they were just l- linking to all of the various. C compilers for PCs in like the late 80s and you know number one nobody pays for C compilers anymore at, at all like it's it seems crazy right. <laughs> uh, but back then it was a huge thing and and they were all you know hundreds of dollars <laughs> yeah well and you bought one app that was you know you, and you researched it right. and it's like this is going to be the word processor right. that I use and you paid your couple of hundred bucks yep and 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 because in part you'd put in the research and you'd paid the money, you were loyal. Yeah, right. That was that was your tool, and and you got good at whatever your tool was. So you know, I mean, those of us who were in the industry and got review copies um, were really unusual because we had used multiple different things and could compare them. And that's why the comparison articles were so popular right. because you really wanted to know which one were you going to pick. Once you paid your money, it was not a good thing to have to to switch off. Right, it was. They comparison articles were were essential to the both the magazines, you know, and the weeklies and and they're they're still useful even today because a good comparison article just takes time to do. Yeah. But at that time it was it was like you almost nobody would have the access to do how do you review right. three different five hundred dollar word processors or whatever they cost. You know? Yeah. You had to be associated with Macworld or Mac user. Right. And and it was interesting for me actually. I remember the first app or first product that I was ever given for review was Now Utilities 2.0. Oh man, what a great, what a great. And fabulous, fabulous app, fabulous collection of apps, obviously wonderful utilities. And I reviewed the hell out of that thing. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote so much because I couldn't believe they'd given me this free software. You know, and before that, I mean, like you saved your money to buy stuff like quick keys and suitcase. And, you know, you, you really agonized over the fact that you could spend $50 on this app. And you know, and when you got it, you were just like, "Oh, this is the best thing ever!" And and so yeah, so it, and it was always terrible when you had the best thing ever, and then someone came out with a new one, <laughs> and you had to decide whether or not you could justify switching to this new app that was the same as yours but better because it was newer in these ways. Right. And uh, yeah, the compression wars—that was the other th- big thing that was going on back then. Uh. 
All right, let's let's pick it up at the compression yes. wars. I'm going to take a break though and thank our first sponsor, my good friends at Linode. Hey, Linode is where I host Daring Fireball. And look, you probably have more time on your hands now than you have lately. If one of your ideas has been to move where you're hosting your website, go ahead and take a look at Linode. Linode is absolutely terrific. They have 11 data set data centers worldwide, enterprise grade hardware and their next generation network. Anything that you think of, you know, the type of stuff you put on a web server, the quote unquote lamp stack, you know, uh, Apache, MySQL, PHP, Perl, that type of stuff, traditional stuff, easy to do, all the new stuff. Do you want to host a game server for Minecraft, that sort of thing? That's a fantastic thing. I've suggested this here. A lot of parents with young kids have like, you know, I never really thought about that. What a great way to do it. Well, guess what? Linode, they have a plan called the Nanode plan. Nano, because it's small, starts at just five bucks a month. Absolutely fantastic for hosting a Minecraft game server. So whether it's something just personal, like a Minecraft server for you and your kids, or totally deep into the technical woods, full-time IT, enterprise scale hosting, Linode has you covered. Native SSD everywhere, every plan, 40 gigabit network, just you name it, they've got it. Great Python command line interface APIs if you're into that sort of depth of expertise, but also a really, really easy visual control panel if you just want something simple, turn it on, set it up, let it run. Uh, really great stuff. They also have a new thing, object storage, which is an API compatible version or, or competitor alternative to Amazon S3. You can take code written for S3, hook it up to their object storage and just switch right over. Really great. Here's what you do to find out more. Go to linode.com slash the talk show. Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash the talk show. The promo code is talk show 20 and you get $20 credit $20 for 20 credit $20 in credit or if you prefer $20 or 20 for 2020 doesn't matter just remember 20 talk show 20 you'll save 20 bucks that's four months on their nanode plan and last but not least they're hiring linode.com slash careers go there check it out if you're looking for work linode.com slash careers they are hiring great company go check them out the storage war or the, the, the compression wars. Compact Pro versus Stuff It. <laughs> and then Disc Doubler Disc and Auto Doubler and uh, and um oh gosh, there was there was a company, Alisys. Yeah. Oh, they had slightly dodgy software. <laughs> Because, <laughs> I mean, this is compression, so you'd care – it was touching every freaking file on your hard disk. So this – my story on this, I, I was a disk doubler person. Yes, and disk so doubler I, was great. I had – I told you I, I had a Mac LC, came with a 40-megabyte hard disk, and uh, I had no money to buy an external hard drive, which were exorbitantly expensive at the time. So like I told you earlier, I spent a lot of money on floppies. <laughs> so anything I really wanted backed up would be backed up to floppies. But if you have a 40 megabyte dr hard drive and your floppies are 1.4, I, you know, in the 90s, we were up to the double density floppies. So they were all 1.4 <laughs> megabytes. Remember how you could buy a single density one and then use a hole punch? <laughs> Yes, yes. Click and punch the other side of it. So number one, house. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It. I never had one go bad. 
but it does seem really loose and loosey goosey with your data integrity that you just took <laughs> took a floppy that was certified as 800 kilobytes, used a hole punch to punch a hole through the plastic because that's how the disk drive mechanisms they just shone a light through the you know does the light go through? Yes, okay, high density. <laughs> And it worked. But anyway, all I can assume is it was one of those things. It wasn't worth making the dr- the the quality worse. You know, like you y- you work you work up your manufacturing right. line. Why would you make it worse? All right. So <laughs> I never had any troubles either. So I it, I'm going to crack up so many times telling this story, and people who are young enough not to remember this are going to think it's not true. But Disc Doubler was a utility, a commercial utility. Sold for a reasonable amount of money because it was it was consumer, not not you know not sold just to businesses. It was advertised the heck out of in Mac user and Mac Mac world. You know, I don't know, fifty bucks maybe. Let's say fifty bucks. You'd buy a copy of Disk Doubler, and then when you installed it, it would <laughs> it would install a system extension on your Mac, and then it would automatically compress your entire disk, and promised roughly. To double, that's the name, disk doubler. So with 50%, you know, compression, it would double, you know, if you had a 40 megabyte disk, you'd effectively have an 80 megabyte disk. And, and then this is the part, um, number one, already sounds a little too good to be true. And number two, <laughs> they said it hardly, hardly noticeable performance wise. Like they, you know, and you can't say it's not noticeable at all, but they, you know, they had numbers in their ads and they'd say it's only like 5% or something like that. So for like a five to 10% trade off on disk performance, you could double the space of your drive. So it sounds way too good to be true. But I remember reading reviews and reviewers of trusted magazine said it actually works. It actually, everything they say is actually true. And I was like, hmm, because I could really use this because I, every, every week I keep putting stuff from my drive onto floppies, you know, and I was running that 40 megabyte drive at about 37 megabytes. (laughs) All the time. <laughs> and then, you know, you get closer to 40 and, you know, and then you find some empty floppy disks, move some stuff off onto floppies so you could keep going. That sounds good. But the thing is, here's the, the really scary part. You'd install it. If you didn't have, and I didn't, like a 40 megabyte drive to copy your current drive onto just in case, it was, it, it was, you're, you're on the trapeze with no net. <laughs> right (laughs) like if i had installed if i had tried disk doubler and it had just corrupted my drive in the way that i kind of thought there must be a very high chance that it would i i just lost everything that wasn't already on a floppy disk and if i had to restore it would be like you know one megabyte from this disk one megabyte from that disk but anyway long story short it it friggin worked (laughs) so that software was just amazing i mean the 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 thrill of seeing it work because it was truly magic to have your drive suddenly have twice as much space and you know i can't remember the amount of uh of performance hits as you say but i do remember there was you only saw it when you opened and closed stuff right like because it had to expand into memory and then recompress and you know but that's not a time when you're really all that stressed right Right. you were working at full speed. It was just, you know, opening and closing was a little slower. And and disk I.O., even on a hard disk, was so slow at the time. <laughs> you know, I think that's the, you know, the layman's explanation for how could it possibly be true is that 
the yeah the the compression algorithm that ran on your CPU as it read the bytes off your drive was fast enough and efficient enough, and the drive was so slow, <laughs> even if you weren't yeah. compressing everything, that it it could be made to work. It was, and and that's the secret is that even if you weren't using disk doubler, reading a file off your hard drive was incredibly slow. You just knew, oh, uh, you know wait for this here's the watch cursor and yeah you'd wait for stuff but also things were just smaller too yeah so you know i mean I, I, i've been doing a lot of disk testing recently due to a failed ssd in my imac and and i'm kind of dealing with this performance issues and i was like boy you know i just don't remember max being slow <laughs> In the past, but that's partly because we 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 moved so much less data around, mm -hmm. and and they could be pretty quick, you know, for how what the user saw, even if the actual like throughput, I mean, was just insanely bad. Yeah, well, I mean, at that time, like you know, by the early nineties, they everybody's you know, like you had like a twenty or forty megabyte hard disk in your Mac when you got a new one, but they were still the, the ecosystem was still there from the era before hard drives. Yep. And so the assumption was that you might just be running your app off of floppy disk. And so the app and all of its documents <laughs> needed to be <laughs> on a floppy disk, which in practice was, I, I've always thought it, it hearkened back, or, or harks back quite a bit now to the way iOS works where you you don't really have files in a file system and when you delete the app you delete its data mm. and it's all just there like the idea that like your word processor and all of your word processing documents were on one floppy disk was yes. you know sort of conceptually yeah. similar no you had a word processing disk yeah that's, that's absolutely true. And yes, you had a spreadsheet disk, and you had a database disk, and you didn't mix them, no. partly because you only had one disk drive, right, right. most of the time. <laughs> so yeah, no, that that I think that is conceptually conceptually fair. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> um, but I have to say, the one thing that was even more magical than Disk Doubler, and I, I remember when this came out at MacWorld and covering it in Tidbits. Um, was Connectix's RAM doubler, mm. the first virtual memory system. And and again, it was the same thing, right? They were just compressing RAM you know, and moving some stuff off to disk and you know, all the little virtual memory tricks that are kind of standard now we don't even think about. Uh, but that was, you know, that was a back when memory was so mind-bogglingly expensive, you know, hundreds of dollars per megabyte. <laughs> all right. However expensive I was thinking and just complaining that hard drives were, RAM was <laughs> way more. RAM was like, you know, like, it was like getting the uranium and back to the future. It was like, you know, forget about it. You had to like know somebody. Uh, and so, yeah, doubling your RAM through virtual memory. But th the crazy part of that is you think like, well, virtual memory, we're all used to it, you know, so uh, sure, I can believe it. The crazy part compared to today was that it came from a third party. <laughs> it wasn't like yes. Apple has enabled this feature <laughs> called RAM doubler and you could turn it on and double your RAM. It was a utility you bought from a company. <laughs> That modified Mac OS to have virtual memory, and it it was an operating system that didn't have virtual memory. Like that's that's yes. crazy today. 
And and my understanding, and uh, you know, I was not a computer person, uh, computer science person. So my understanding, though, is that the concept of virtual memory was pretty well known at that point in time. Yeah. In the Unix world, you know, this was not a, a an astonishing revelation that Connectix came up with. It was more that Apple didn't do it, right. and so Connectix did. And that's just fascinating. You know, I mean, you can't. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> no one can get into the operating system to that level. Right. And uh, you know, and I think that it's it it comes down to the fact that just by the nature of the machines, everything, even the Mac, which was conceptually in terms of when you turned it on, presented itself in a way that abstracted the computer. You know, like it it was a big deal that the 1984 Mac, when you turned it on, what was the first thing you saw when the screen went on? You saw a smiling Mac logo. You didn't see some kind of fixed width monospaced font telling you, you know, initializing dot, 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 and then a couple of things stream by, and then the graphics kick in. It, it, it was completely encapsulated in a, you know, a graphical interface. Um, but still, it, the truth is it ran very low to the metal by today's standards. And, and there just, it just wasn't that much there. So a very clever, talented team of third party developers from outside the company could, just sort of dissect it, figure out how the whole thing worked and figure out, well, if we just patch right here, <laughs> we, <laughs> we can control now, the system's memory. Now, did you ever go to Mac hack? No, I never went, I never went to Mac hack. So I, 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 I knew about Mac hack for many years. I, I'd, I'd write about it in tidbits because there was always the hack contest, right. the Mac hacks contest, which was different, spelled different, slightly differently. There were issues with that. Um, and then one year, someone said, you know, like, oh, are you going to Mac hack? And I was like, well, no, I'm not a programmer. And I was like, oh, really? I thought you were there last year. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, if people are assuming that I should be going, <laughs> and I was there, and they just missed me. So I went and I had more fun than could possibly be imagined. But what was most amazing about it was the level of creativity that came out of the best programmers in the Macintosh world sitting in a hotel lobby for 72 hours drinking Jolt Cola. <laughs> so for people and who, programming nonstop. <laughs> so for people who don't remember, just give the, the high-level overview of what <laughs> MacHack was. So MacHack, it was a programmer's conference. And so only for developers. And it dates way back. I don't actually quite remember when the first ones were, probably in the 80s, uh, late 80s, if not uh, if not before. And it happened in Dearborn, Michigan, in a, uh, in a, a ho- Holiday Inn? I think it was a Holiday Inn. Might as well have been. And <laughs> it, well, and the, but the point was that there was nothing else to do. Right. Right? You went to this holiday and it had a great lobby. And then everyone would sit around the entire time in this big lobby and at tables with lots of power bricks and everything. And, and, you know, chatting and discussing about the best ways to do things and hack this and, you know, what you could do to get into the system this way and that. And everyone was developing the, the hacks, which were just to demonstrate interesting facts or techniques or something that this programmer knew. And they weren't meant to be useful. And in fact, when you demoed it, if it was useful, the audience would derisively yell useful at you. 
Um, if you and if you talked it up too much, then they would yell marketing at you. <laughs> right. uh, marketing was a dirty word, uh, and and this, but it was it was just completely developer centric and of its era. I mean, the keynote on the first day started at midnight, hmm. and people <laughs> literally didn't sleep the entire time. <laughs> So I guess the idea the idea was everybody would fly into Michigan and during the day then you'd go there yeah. and dump your stuff I don't even know did people even get hotel rooms I guess Oh it was everyone stayed in the right. same hotel Right but then, you never left the hotel And then by the time you'd like unpack and you know it, then the conference just started that night there you go Yep Yep. yep. Conference started and you would you would you would program straight for 72 hours and then it culminated with the the presentation of the hacks and um Scott Boyd and some of the other blue meanies from Apple or uh the people who ran the Mac Hack Mac Hacks contest and they would come up with these wonderful prizes. Um and the best one was um a Victor A trap mouse trap <laughs> because A traps were Something in programming. Right. I don't even right. remember if I knew that. Right. And so it was. It was. If you won the the Victor A trap, that was a badge of honor, right. and and showed that you you were you know like the best of the best. But the things that came out of here out of that, you know, um, we had in, the Energizer Bunny. You know, where someone actually programmed something to jump. It was a little the Energizer Bunny beating his little drum, walking from Macintosh to Macintosh over the network. Right. <laughs> um, you know that's where Oscar the Grouch came from. When you threw something away in the trash, the Grouch came out. Was and that sang. really a Mac hack? I didn't know that. I've talked about the Grouch I'm extension many. It probably was. Pretty sure it was yeah. Eric Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. It probably was. And um, uh, let's see. Then oh, John Gatto, who still does um, default folder ten. Um, still around, still still programming great stuff. He broke his 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 PowerBook screen on the way to the conference one year, but didn't completely break it. So it was like just the upper tri- triangle out of the upper corner broke, and he somehow rewrote the video driver to map out those pixels. <laughs> so it was a fully functional screen with just like a chunk taken out of it, but you didn't miss anything behind there because it didn't know those pixels existed anymore. <laughs> And someone someone figured out how to do a FireWire virus, Ooh. where all you had to do was plug into FireWire, and and you would be infected. Um, Stuart Shesher did the first Wi-Fi um, uh, scanner. So he actually he pulls up his his app in the demonstration, you know, in the program. Everyone's got we got Wi-Fi at this point. Um, this is a little later, and um, he pulls it up, pulls it up, and it starts showing on screen all the images from the web pages people in the audience are loading. <laughs> because it was unprotected WAP at the time. Right. So as it just uh, amazing stuff. And a lot of it really was proof of concept of, we think this is a problem. I've got 72 hours to explore. And I've got the people who know more about this, including the developers of the operating system right. a lot of the times. So a lot of Apple people went. Well, Stuart Sesher, so, among other things, it, yeah. it invented Bonjour Networking, which we still, we don't even right. really talk about it anymore, but it's still... Yeah, it's just there. Right. <laughs> just works. So, right, so you had, you had access to the smartest people in the community, and so you, and you'd have an idea, and you'd, like, and you, you'd know you could go over and talk to this person or that person if you got stuck. Right. And everyone just helped everyone else, and, you know... And and so, and you know, half the stuff barely worked. I mean, you just had to get it working enough to demo it. 
it was never meant to be a product. Almost nothing ever shipped out of MacHack. That wasn't the point. The point was just to, this was your time to, to experiment and to explore. Right. And, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a writer, it was, it was the ultimate time because you could talk to everybody. You could just sit and hang out in these conversations and, and learn more about what was going on in the, in the Macintosh world than any other way. It's incredible. Well, I I always wanted to go. It it was always sort of out of my budget uh, slash too young and just never got around. But I remember when you started going, and I remember you sort of you know telling putting it the same way you just did here, where it was like you always thought it was for programmers, and they're like, no, you should come. And then you started writing about it, and it it suddenly became, and it wasn't like it was a secret thing. It wasn't that nobody, it wasn't that it hadn't been documented because it wasn't, it was secret. It's just that there wasn't a writer who went and, you know, you weren't going to patch any a traps. So you wrote about it. And <laughs> I just remember loving that. I just remember appreciating it. Like I'd heard of Mac hack kind of knew the gist of it, but then once you started writing about it, it was like, you know, it, all of a sudden you are there like any, you know, good journalism. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was so wonderful also to really meet the people because we had email back then. But it really was email and private mailing lists and things like that. And you know, you didn't have the immediacy of social media of Twitter or Facebook of even chat. Um, people did IRC a little bit, but um, not so much. And that wasn't where the, where the good stuff happened. And so you'd know these people, but you really didn't get a chance to meet them a lot of the time until you went to something like Mac Hack or Mac World. I mean, you know, that's kind of where I met, you know, a lot of the people who I've become friends with subsequently. Um, and, you know, you just, you, you could actually spend real time with them. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even just like Macworld was great, but Macworld was more like meet and greet. Mac hack, it was sit down and, you know, talk for an hour. Yeah. All right, let me take a break here. Thank our second sponsor. It's our good friends at Feels, F E A L S. Hey, do you experience stress? Do you have anxiety, chronic pain, trouble sleeping? Even just once a week, well, you're not alone. Many of us do. And quite frankly, many of us have a lot more of it lately. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Feels naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, sleeplessness. All you do, you take a few drops, put it under your tongue, and you can feel the difference within minutes. Are you new to CBD? Feels offers a free CBD hotline and text message support if you don't feel like calling, which is what I would do, uh, to help guide your personal experience, figure out what you should order, how to get started. It works naturally to help you feel better. There is no high, no hangover, no addiction. Membership is the way that they have a thing you subscribe to. You get it delivered to your door every month. You save money by being a member compared to ordering uh, dose by dose, package by package. Uh, when you do sign up for a membership at Feels, you can pause or cancel anytime, no questions asked, no problems. All you have to do is go to Feels.com. Once again, F-E-A-L-S, because now that they kind of own the word, Feels.com slash talk show. And if you go to that URL, Feels.com slash talk show, you save 50% off your first order and get free shipping. That's feels.com slash talk show. Become a member and save 50% automatically. My thanks. 
to feels. All right, let's go back to tidbits. Um, but I, you know, we've set the stage. You know, it's the early go go years, the '90s of the internet. One of the things I have, I always found interesting right away. I mean, tidbits grab my attention, uh, and, and truly, I mean, it was, I don't even know what else. You know, the only other thing I could really think of as an inspiration before Daring Fireball um, would be uh, Matt Detheridge's MDJ. Mm. Um, MDJ, MWJ. Yeah. Uh, as online publications that weren't like, it, it, and I'm not putting down the the idea of blogging. Certainly, there were uh, hundreds and hundreds of good good blogs before Daring Fireball started in 2002, um, but there weren't any that seemed like this is what somebody wants. You know, this is a this is meant to stand toe to toe with any publication in terms of its editorial merit, integrity, usefulness, any good adjectives you can throw at it. And the thing about tidbits that was just like a thunderbolt to me as a college student in the early '90s was this is a hundred percent serious. Like, and it wasn't pretentious. It was always, you know, the, you know, the, the, the writing style, it, the editorial voice is consistent through to today. It was from the user's perspective, right? It was very much always, you know, we're all in this together. We're like you, we're just writing this, but it never felt like, Oh, tidbits is just, you know, Adam and Tanya angst trying to get jobs at Macworld, you know, and then they'll, then they'll go to <laughs> Macworld and tidbits will go away. Yeah, it's an interesting realization. I, I sometimes consider this in terms of, you know, like, Tanya and I are very much, you know, Gen X. And we're kind of the bottom of the population curve. And we got out of college at a time when the economy wasn't doing so well. And I think there's a little bit of, I don't, inferiority complex isn't quite the right term, but we felt we needed to seem professional. Mm. We knew we were faking it, right? I mean, you know, I started tidbits when I was, what, 23. So, you know, I was faking it like crazy. But it was definitely one of those things where you tried as hard as you could to emulate the big boys, you know, the Macworlds, the Macweeks, whatnot. And it turned out you could do that. That was merely work. Mm. I mean, you, you could learn how to write well and, you know, and do those things. I, like, I don't, have a, I don't have a degree in journalism. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't have any training in this. My degree's in hypertextual fiction and classics, for goodness sake. So it was a learning curve, I think, but one where we knew what we were going for. I, but but and, it was yeah. you, you. It was clearly aimed to be at the standards of like the yes. big boys, but it in no way emulated the format. You know, it wasn't monthly; no. it was weekly, and it was you know. And then there was Mac Week, which was weekly, but was very much in and of the trade industry, and and tidbits was very much not. You know, it was clearly meant. For it was egalitarian and meant for everybody. I mean, I, I joked about how hard it was to read uh, Mac Week, but it really was. And whereas you guys, mm -hmm. you just said, like, part of the reason you switched from hypertext to the plain text C-text was to get make it as easy as possible. Literally, like, you went, you, you did everything you possibly could to make it as <laughs> easy as possible for anybody who might want tidbits to get it and read it and who might 
want it but has never heard of it to discover it. And that was the same reason why we uploaded to all the commercial services, mm-hmm. you know, and, and encouraged people to spread it further, you know, in terms of bulletin boards or whatever. You know, Tidbits has always been free, and as always, we've always really wanted people to read. You know, that's what it's about. And so, you know, and not about trying to, 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 to narrow it down or have a paywall or make portions of it available, anything like that. And, and I really liked that, that aspect of it. The, the one thing that I do remember getting criticized for, and this was actually more with the Internet Starter Kit um, than Tidbit specifically, but we wrote from the first person mm. and we wrote active voice. Mm. And, that was actually pretty unusual at the time. Mm. That tech writing was 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 often third person passive voice um, back then. But of course, it's horrible to read. And not having a journalism degree or not having any any background in this, I wrote what I knew, and what I knew was in my voice. So I think that that I think people identified with that. That you could easily put yourself into that eye. Yeah, and, and it came, and and that's what always made it so compelling to me. And again, there's a place for the other styles, and of course, you know, Mac World was always a little bit more buttoned up, and Mac User a little <laughs> bit more yep. buttoned down. And I think that you know, as somebody who is a voracious reader of both. I feel like the people I know who were involved in them uh, saw that a little bit more closely than those of us on the outside, even though I'm a very, I was a very close reader of both, but the people who were in the game at the time really saw that, you know, that the yes. Mac world saw themselves as more serious, like the New Yorker of the monthly Mac magazines and Mac user was a little more people magazine. Um, and, and eventually, then we got Mac Addict, right. which took it even further, right? Right. You know, into the uh, Gonzo journalism, so to speak. Right. And you know, and I think as the years went on, it blurred because people jumped ship. And I know, I, I think I, at least I think I know that Jason Snell started at Mac User and then wound up yeah. running mm-hmm. Mac World, and Mac User went away, and it blurred. But, but like at the time. It, like and I can't think of anything that better exemplified it than the fact that Andy and Atko's column was in Mac User, and and it was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Andy's yeah. style just it, Andy couldn't have been Andy in MacWorld. It just wouldn't, you know. Well, and in fact, the I remember in 1992 was the moment I first was asked to write for one of the magazines, and I got a column. I had a column. It was actually only very short lived, unfortunately, not doing my fault fault of mine i was told but um it was called beating the system mm. and it was all about ways to kind of hack the system mm. and with utilities and and whatnot stuff that would go under the hood and um and i and, mac, and it was mac user and they um for whatever reason they sort of reorganized the book and uh and and canceled that column as part of it um but i was mostly happy because i got the t-shirt <laughs> As as having written, I don't know, two or three of them before they, it was only a few months. Um, and I got the t-shirt and I love that t-shirt. I still have it somewhere. <laughs> but again, that, you know, that was, uh, that was what you did back then today. You got the t-shirt and you were good. <laughs> I've told this, I've told this story before. I should, I should have Andy on the show and do a show with Andy, but I'll tell it here. But the first time my name ever appeared in a, in a Macintosh magazine 
was was Andy. I think Andy was co-bylined the column with Bob Levitas. Uh, it was like the Mac mm-hmm. Help column. And they would answer your questions. You'd answer, you know, you'd, you'd write in like, hey, I'm running out of space on my hard disk. What do I do? And it, and it was always very, you know, I don't know how the heck it worked because the lead time on magazines was like four or five months back then. And so, like, <laughs> even if, like, you wrote your letter and it got to them and they read it right away and thought, this is a great question, and they answered it right away for their next upcoming column, it was still going to, like, the answer was going to show up, like, months later. Like, if it happened as fast as possible. <laughs> and, you know, and, and uh, Bob and Andy I, were good together, but, uh, you know, a- Andy's style appealed to me more. I mean, because he was just so, uh, just uh, odd, you know, just crazy. And so yeah. I, I wrote a letter. <laughs> I wrote a letter, and it had nothing to do with, with, Macintosh. I just wrote who would win in a fight, the Millennium Falcon or the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> John Gruber, Philadelphia. And I my honest expectation was that maybe Andy would see it. I didn't know him, I, you know, but I was just a fan. I thought maybe he'll see it and it'll crack a smile. I hope it cracks a smile. I might have even had like a PS, I love your co- you know, I love your column, you know, love it. And then like five months later, I'm like reading Mac user and there it is. I, I had no idea. They never called to confirm or anything like that. I'd actually forgotten that I sent it in. I think I actually sent like a paper letter to do it. I'm just flipping through Mac user and there's my question. And Andy went into D. De- I actually don't remember the answer. So anybody out there who, who has a stash of old Mac users, take a look. If you can find it, I'll, I'll give you, I don't know what I'll give you, but. I'll give you something. <laughs> but he took it seriously and just, and it's just in the middle of like, you know, recommending now utilities to solve this and, you know, telling you how to set up style sheets and, and, you know, page maker to, to get around that. And, you know, all of these actual answers to actual questions. And in the middle of the column was Andy going <laughs> off about a Star Wars spaceship versus a Star Trek spaceship and who would win. And I, I, I loved it. Which he must have just enjoyed so much. I don't know. It was knowing Andy. It was crazy, and I gotta say, like the the dope. Even though it was just, and it my my question was like eight eight words long, but seeing my name in Mac user was such a dopamine hit. I was like, ooh. <laughs> um, but you know what? So uh, one of the other things that was so striking, you say you you like at Cornell, you you majored in the classics. So one of the my favorite bylines and tidbits was Matt Newberg. Uh, oh, who was my professor? Right of the classics. He was actually my Greek. He was my Greek professor. I mean, literally Greek, ancient right. Greek, <laughs> like the real, not the easy Greek, like going to Greece now. We're talking, you know, Plato and Socrates and 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 Archimedes and you know, old school. Uh, but also, you know, perhaps better known if you don't remember, you don't know his byline from Tidbits, but you might, as a listener of this show, remember that he's written a fantastic, he, he's one of the greatest, pro, he, I, not the greatest, my favorite programming books ever written are Matt's. He wrote the Apple Script Definitive Guide, which if you want to do anything, even to this day, if you want to do anything in Apple Script, you, if you don't... It, if you don't own that book, I don't know how you do it because AppleScript is such a bizarro, weird language with edges that can be bitten. And Matt somehow figured it all out. Um, all sorts of other books over the years, but well, in fact, it's actually it, it plays into his strengths because he really he is a classicist. Right. So Greek, Latin, 
you know, other languages as well. And to give you an idea, um, when I took a class with him, the class I took was Greek composition. And so you were, we were translating English, 25 sentences of English into Greek every week. But this was a class for two people. <laughs> Me and another guy. And Matt wrote a textbook for us because he wasn't happy with all of the other ones out there. So you can see where he goes. He takes that and then he moves it into other languages like AppleScript and now his iOS programming right. books. I mean, and Swift and whatnot. Yeah. So it's actually, a, in some ways, a really understandable path, but you wouldn't have expected it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and he would have. You know, well, that was also one of the things. I mean, t just Tidbits was a magnet for really good writers. I mean, that's where I got introduced to Glenn Fleischman and just it, there's a Tidbit style and the, the writers who were drawn to it were, you know, drawn to that sort of mindset, but their individual voices always shone through. And, and one of the things that we tried to do. Um, that, again, may not be obvious in today's world, is that magazines had hard word limits. Mm. Yes. You were, if you had a 600-word article, you wrote 600 words. Or if you wrote more, they just cut them <laughs> because they didn't have any more space. <laughs> it was physical space limitations. And so one of the things that was interesting about Tidbits is we did, you know, for a while have that 30K limit. But we could just put out another issue right. if we needed to. I mean, we, like, we, didn't, wasn't, we weren't constrained in any real way. And so one thing that I always told people was is you write what you need to write to explain the, the, the subject. And... I don't care how long it is. Nowadays, I try to I try to rein people in a little bit because sometimes I feel like people can just keep going on and on and on. Right. But uh, but the, overall, the concept of being able to write to the comfortable length or the length that the subject needed was actually really unusual. And and so yeah, there were people like Matt and Glenn and you know Lex Friedman um, wrote for us for a while. Um, and what a, for a while, I mean, we were obviously been friends with Jason forever. And to an extent, Tibbets was seen as a farm team. Mm. You know that someone would write for us, and then I'd get email from Jason saying, you know, hey, is you know so and so's pitched an article, or I'm looking for someone. Do you know someone? And I'd say, well. Here you go. Tidbits can't pay them, but you can, so please do. Hmm. You know, at the time we just had we had no money, so we couldn't pay people, but you know, everyone was happy to write for free. And sometimes it turned into serious careers for these people. Yeah, definitely. Uh I mean, you know, and some of them are still you know, as much in the game as as ever, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Glenn obviously yeah. going strong and, you know, and, and obviously we were at some point we managed to get our finances uh, changed around so that we could pay people because, of course, you want to right. be able to do that. Um, and I don't, I don't actually don't think it changed that much. Um, it was more that we had the same people writing, but now we could pay them as opposed to, uh, me, you know, feeling, feeling badly that we weren't. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that a lot of well, I, I, you know, Matt, we just said, has a bunch of great programming books under his belt. Uh, you wrote the <laughs> Internet Starter Kit, which was a sensation 
in the nineties. I mean, I, I, we really have to talk about it. I mean, I know it's 30 bits, 30, it's 30 years of tidbits, ah. but the internet starter kit, yeah, it, it's hard to fathom how important a book could be, but, and it was more than a book cause it came with a CD. So it would have, you know, and first one was the floppy well, disk. Floppy disk because you didn't have C- and <laughs> CD-ROMs. Didn't have. We weren't even up to CDs. <laughs> so, but that floppy disk was actually the key to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was that we in 1993, when this book comes out, there was a small amount of graphical internet software, and so before this, you know, internet. Getting on the internet was a command line thing. You'd do it via a terminal of some sort. And that was about the only thing. You could download stuff. You'd have, we had you know, file transfer programs and whatnot, but not much more than that. And the graphical stuff required a TCP stack. Transmission control protocol is one of the core protocols of the internet. And it came from Apple. Only Apple could make it. But it cost $60. <laughs> And you couldn't just go to an Apple store to buy it because there were no Apple stores. So, and Apple didn't like make it available via Mac Connection and Mac Warehouse and all of the mail order stores. I mean, this was really hard stuff to get, and it was sixty bucks. So, I'm, I'm I'm working on my book, and my my acquisitions editor is a woman named Karen Whitehouse at Hayden, and Karen was amazing. She's one of those women who just doesn't take no for an answer. Which is kind of how I ended up writing the book. <laughs> she didn't. T- I didn't say no, but I, I. I didn't say yes instantly when she asked if I'd write the book. But uh, so she asked what I wanted on the disc, and I was like, "Well, you know, it would be great if you could get me Mac TCP, something called um, uh, uh, Mac Slip um, from Intercon Software. That was the thing that that." dialed your modem and would get me the, but it would instead of just giving you a terminal connection mac slip would yes. give you an ip address and your mac was on yep. it as that was the ip right. part of tcp ip so you needed those two things and um and then i was like oh and eudora and fetch and i can't even remember if there was anything else in that first one um, so stuff it stuff it expanded uh, right you need ad head stuff yeah because you couldn't you otherwise you couldn't, you couldn't expand any yeah <laughs> So, and so Mac T, so, so I did totally didn't expect Karen to be able to get Mac TCP because it was commercial, serious commercial software. And all the, the rest of the other stuff was either shareware or free software right. or otherwise. And she somehow talked Apple into licensing Mac TCP for $5,000, which was a ton of money at the time. Right. But Hayden had, was in a funny situation. They were a new imprint of, oh gosh, Prentice Hall yeah. and Macmillan, one of the larger companies at the time, I can't remember. And they were just told to get market share mm. so they could spend money. And so so Karen goes and gets Mac TCP and we put it on the disk. And that makes it a complete system with one more thing, which was that I was like, oh, who are you going to call? And not Ghostbusters, but um, the, the you needed an ISP. And there weren't just ISPs at that point in time. I mean, there was like one in every city, maybe, if it was a big enough city. Seattle had one. And the Seattle ISP was a, a company called Northwest Nexus, and I'd been working with them since I moved to Seattle in 1991. Because um, I'd actually connected with another group that they'd merged with um, for, you know, sort of when you just shared internet connections. And so I went to see them and I said, you know, hey, I'm looking for an ISP to do this. Do you know of anyone? I just assumed they wouldn't want to do it because this was going to be a, a national book, if not an international book. And the guy, Ed Morin, said, that's a problem we'd like to have. 
I'm like, oh, okay. And so we ended up having all the software and a flat rate internet account, which was the first one. Mm. So before that, you paid by the minute. <laughs> so the longer you stayed online, you could see that racking up. So you talk about 10 bucks an hour to call Amy in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, that was the same thing with your internet connection. Right. <laughs> Plus, I mean, actually it was worse than that because it was long distance phone call possibly and the internet, you know, the right. cost of the internet connection. So this was so popular. We actually had people calling internationally from Japan to Seattle because it was cheaper than getting internet access in Japan. That's crazy. It was 30 bucks a month. And so, so yeah, so that book, I mean, you know, obviously you you do the best work you can. I had never written a book before. I was just, you know, I was like giving people everyone, giving everyone everything I knew. And at that time, it literally was everything there was to know about the internet and the Macintosh. And I'm pretty confident of that because we actually held the book for another week or two um, so I could get stuff about um, the first web browser, MacWWW, in it and, um, and stuff like that. So that yeah, was just happening. And so we were the fifth book about the internet rather than the fourth because of holding it for an extra couple of weeks so I could cover the web. I remember reading it and I remember that I was a, a, a voracious enough Mac nerd on the internet at the time that I knew just about all of it. I definitely learned Eudora stuff from you. I mean, how could you not? I mean, nobody, <laughs> only Steve Dorner knew more about Eudora than you. <laughs> uh, so I definitely did learn stuff and, or, or, or relearned stuff that I had forgotten, but I just enjoyed reading it as the, you know, it was like a reinforcement of encyclopedic knowledge. It, you know, it, I, I can completely confirm yeah. that it felt to me like this is everything you could possibly possibly know about getting a Macintosh onto the internet. Yeah. I, I think the thing that's so crazy in hindsight, it's so hard to remember. And like you think like, well, how the hell could Mac TCP be something Apple tried to sell for $60? It, and it wasn't, I don't think so much a proprietary money grab, but just the way the industry had just grown up around, you know, like in the way- It was that, cluelessness. Yeah. That PC floppies and Mac floppies were different file formats, so you couldn't put one, even, you know, you just couldn't put one into the other. Well, there were also different networking protocols, and you might have a Novell network if you had a bunch of PCs, and you had a local talk network if you had a bunch of Macs. And that, you know, and, and, and there were just other proprietary things that, you know, token ring, I, don't, I never saw one but i mean it's it, it, <laughs> i remember reading about it and it was very expensive but you it was just networking was just one of these things where you'd have to like make an investment you know, or file formats you know what i mean like you'd have mac write and somebody else had word yeah. and somebody else had nissus and none of the files could be interchanged and that was that and 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 networking well, was like that and and even at first tcp networking was just sort of seen as another one okay nobody owns it it's out there, you know, it's, it's open source or we didn't even call it open source at the time, but it was just seen as an alternative. And so, you know, the stacks from Microsoft I mean, were just commercial products like everything else. Well, they were and they weren't actually at that point in time. Um, TCP IP was mostly an academic thing. Mm -hmm. And so in fact, Apple mostly site licensed it. Mm. So it, so if you were Cornell, right. You got a site license to Mac TCP and just gave it out to everybody. 
And so that was what was kind of tricky about it was is for most people, you didn't even think about buying it because you just got it mm. as, at work if you were at the appropriate place. And that's why it was so weird that they sold it for $60 because no one could possibly need it if you weren't at a university or possibly a big business, but most corporations really weren't doing this at this point. Right. So it was this really weird outlier product. Um, the, 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 the funny thing that happens is the book comes out in, in September of 1993. And I go to Macworld in, uh, actually, before this happens, before I go to Macworld, in late December, I get a cease and desist letter from Apple. Huh. And I'm, I'm like, I'm freaking out. This is Apple legal. Like, I mean, Apple Legal, who is known to be like, you throw raw meat to the lawyers in the pit kind of Apple Legal. And so I am scared witless by this, um, you know, and they send it to me, which is worse. Like, if they send it to the publisher, <laughs> you know, like, and I'd heard about it, that would have been bad enough. But they send it to me, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, on the phone immediately. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and they publish this, you know, talks me down. It's like, we'll deal with this, don't worry. But they basically said that we had the wrong sort of license. Mm. They didn't mean to, they didn't, you know, that Karen somehow sweet-talked them into something they didn't mean. And so I'm 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 stressing about this for weeks over Christmas and everything, and then we go to MacWorld early January, and I meet up with a guy named Gary Hornbuckle, who was the product manager for that entire division um, at Apple. And as you know, I met him. I you know just actually on the floor, literally just ran into him. He's like, "Oh, Adam, so nice to meet you." And I'm I'm all worried, right, because <laughs> they're being threatened to be sued. And he's like, you know, and he's like, "Don't worry about the lawyers." I will I will deal with them. You have sold more copies of Mac TCP in three months than we have ever sold. Because <laughs> we'd sold like 20,000 copies of the book in that first three months. Right. And so from, I mean, like from his perspective, I was a gift. Like I had made his product popular. <laughs> right. Like in a certain sense as the product manager and and clearly, you know, there were people – it wasn't company wide. It was like it was like a, a a slice of Apple that got the internet right away. And you know, clearly, the team doing yes. Mac TCP was that group. They just wanted Macs to be on the internet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because that was back in the days when ftp.apple.com was a two CI sitting under Mark Johnson's desk. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, and and he was in DTS. He was in developer technical support. He wasn't even in the networking division. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was, and he ran Apple's FTP server. <laughs> so right, so I mean, the internet was wasn't even on the radar of these companies. I mean, it's fascinating because the guy who um, introduced the internet to Microsoft, um, Steve Sanofsky, he was actually Tanya's RA at Cornell, resident advisor. Huh. Um, I did not so, know. That. You know huh. Yes, yes, we've known Steve Sanofsky since 1985. <laughs> um, but he goes back to Cornell. He's 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 working as Bill Gates's like personal assistant. He goes back to Cornell and sees what Cornell is doing with with TCP net, TCP IP networking, and including at that point CUCME, which is the first video conferencing. I remember it, that. Postage stamp size. Yeah. Postage stamps. Um, and he writes the memo to Bill that that starts Microsoft down the path of the internet. Mm. I've actually got a copy. I had never seen it until quite recently, in fact. I've got a copy of it. And it's just fascinating because I can see him like walking around campus talking to these different peoples like, 
oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Because when he left, he, I mean, he was, he was obviously older. He was on his RA. So he must have left in like 86 or 87. It was before that stuff had really hit. So it wasn't until he comes back, I think it was on a recruiting trip, um, and he sees what it's happened at Cornell, and he's like, Microsoft has to go here. Right. And then, and, 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 and yeah. eventually ran up, <laughs> ran up running all of Windows for Microsoft. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that got him somewhere, I guess. So, so yeah, so it's been a it's 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 really hard to remember just how difficult it was for people to to wrap their heads around this stuff. Yeah. It really it really was. Um <laughs> All right, let me take a break here. Thank our third and final sponsor of the episode, our good friends at Squarespace. Hey, Squarespace, you need a website? You have an old website you need updated? Check out Squarespace. Something like a blog, a podcast, you want to host it, you don't know how to start? Check out Squarespace. They have everything. You can register the domain, pick from one of their templates, start posting the CMS itself right there in Squarespace. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, I know you. You know a lot about computers. I need a website. What do I do? Send them to Squarespace. You would be surprised if you view source and start looking around the headers of like HTML sites. Go to like your favorite restaurants and stuff like that. And if it's a really cool looking website, there is an incredibly high chance that they're running on Squarespace because it is a fantastic platform for people who need a website whose business isn't really running a website. It's selling pizza, but they need a website so they can sell the pizza. That sort of thing, Squarespace is the answer. It is so much easier than anything else. And they have a 30-day free trial. Try it. If you don't like it, you don't have to do anything. And then at the end, 30 days in, uh, you do like it. That's when you start paying. Uh, it's just fantastic. Keep them in mind. Next time you need a new website or somebody you know comes to you for help with a website, Squarespace is really just you cannot go wrong by starting there. Put some put put a couple hours into it. See where you get. It's so easy. All visual if you want. Low level. Get in there. Modify the CSS. Add your own JavaScript if that's your thing. If that's the level you want to work at. But if you're not, you just want to do it totally WYSIWYG. Squarespace has you covered. Go to squarespace.com/talkshow to get your free trial today. And that's just to get your free trial started. Squarespace.com/talkshow. But the same. Code talk show will get you 10% off your first purchase when your 30 day free trial's up and you have to start paying. So just go there. My thanks to Squarespace for continuing to support this podcast. Uh, all right. Somehow we've got to cover like 20 years of tidbits history in the last. <laughs> it is daunting sometimes when I think back about just how long I've been doing this because I never started with this intent. It wasn't like, oh, this is going to be my career. It was just this thing, which I did. Where, what's, and, what's the point? Here's my question. What's the point where – was there a point in – or in hindsight, does it seem like there's a point? Like, what's the point where it felt like, hey, this is here to stay? Well, probably – in some sense, it, it, it became real to me, in fact, when we moved to Seattle. So in um, in 1991, um, Tanya got a job at Microsoft supporting Microsoft Word, mm -hmm. and 
the so we moved from Ithaca to Seattle and I had been doing Apple consulting well, Mac consulting say Apple now but it was all Mac and there was nothing else uh, doing Mac consulting in Ithaca and suddenly I knew no one you know it's a completely different area and there's probably a lot more business there if I'd had the context but I was completely completely on, um, at sea and so I basically just kind of doubled down on tidbits and that was what I did and so that was when we started um, we started our sponsorship program and in fact that was the first advertising on the internet and I don't know Google has yet to say thank you so <laughs> well let me say thank you I thank you <laughs> I'm glad you you can earn a living now that we have advertising on the internet. But but yeah, back in 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 1991, 1992, that that era, we had the acceptable use policy mm. because we we're still moving kind of off of the ARPANET and you know who National Science Foundation was sort of in charge of stuff. And this National Science Foundation acceptable use policy said you can't do commerce on the internet. And it wasn't really quite clear what that meant. Um, there was actually another guy who's still around, Brad Templeton, had done a, actually a commercial service called Clarinet that had syndicated content like you know Dave Barry columns and stuff. You had to pay for that. And that was on Usenet. But, uh, but Tidbits was the absolute first advertising on the internet. And, um, and I think that was when it I don't want to say sunk in that it was real, but when I, when I was like, okay, you know, now I have to do this. Like, this is how I earn a living. Mm. And that really, you know, that, 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 that made the difference. And keep in mind, it's not all that much longer that I write Internet Starter Kit for Macintosh, which sold some insane number, I don't know, five, six hundred thousand copies over, over three or four years. So, that changed things in many ways even more, but I was always really clear about how Tidbits had to keep going because Tidbits was the only reason why I got to do the Internet Starter Kit. Mm. And, you know, fast forwarding a bunch of years, it's, Tidbits is the only reason why our Take Control book series was was, was successful. Right. So, so I've always kept Tidbits as like, this is my foundation. This is what I work from. And, you know, it's... Like it's it's not it's it's not conceivable. Like I don't know what life would be like if I didn't have a Monday deadline to put out an issue. Mm. I've done it fifteen hundred and ten weeks now, or something like that. So, you know, it's just it's just who I am. Well, that gets to the sort of to me the the defining transition is to a website and. And I got hung up on this for many years. Uh, well, define many at this point, but <laughs> but uh, like I always say, like I, I was at Drexel from ninety one to ninety six, and uh, and the defining thing for me was my participation at the student newspaper, where I went from a columnist to an editor and learned Cork Express and graphic design, just really so that I could make my own columns look better and then wound up being the editor-in-chief of the whole paper. And we had a great little team at a school that had no journalism program at all. Everybody was from, like, mm. mechanical engineering. and But we, you know, just absolutely terrific. And people who went on to careers at, you know, real publications like the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press and photographers who've gone on to win awards at newspapers. It was a really neat little team. Um, 
but I got out of there in 96 and I knew I wanted to do stuff on the internet and wanted to make my own stuff, but I couldn't figure out the format. And I was too hung up on the idea of issues like, and mm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and it took a while for like the, just let go of it. You know, like somehow it took me six years <laughs> to get to daring <laughs> fireball. It's like, you know, I just publish stuff when you come and think of it. And tidbits does that. It's not like you have to wait a week and only new stuff shows up at tidbits.com on Mondays. Like, so I'm curious uh, how you made that transition because the early ones were definitely issues you know the hypercard yeah. stacks the the weekly c text ones it was once a week here it is 30 kilobytes and <laughs> and there's your issue and then you'd wait for the next issue to get more yeah I, it's an interesting question and it's it's an it's it's an evolutionary process so i would say that it Oh gosh, I can't even say when it happened exactly because first we had the website that Andy Affleck made for us at Dartmouth. And then at some point we brought that quote unquote in house. Um, and in fact, uh, it was hosted at um, Glenn Fleischman's point of presence company. He was running an internet uh, provider at the time and, um, and on Webstar. But it was still. That wasn't the source, right? That was just where the issues went after I finished them. Mm. And then the next step actually was Jeff Duncan, who was working with us for many years, um, was was fiddling around with FileMaker and um, utility. I can't remember what they're called. They were like utilities that that allowed you to link FileMaker to a web server. I remember that. Um, I don't remember what they were called either, but I rem I, yeah. I remember doing it right. at Drexel, and I, it was like one of the first ways I made money in life. Was <laughs> yes, yeah. and so 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 he 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 said, "Oh, this is interesting. I can I you know I just like he, he at some point sort of pops up and is like, let me show you something, and and you know, I should say pops up. We talked on the phone every day." Because I've never had an office. It's always been run out of my house. Um, and, and Jeff was working at home, too. And so um, he, he, we would call, we'd spend just hours on the phone. And, but he's like, I want to show you something. And so he, went to, he showed me a website that he had built that was a live searchable archive of everything we'd done, which he had imported into FileMaker. And so, but at that point, it was still just importing the issues. I mean, so we sort of we sort of backed into this concept of a website. And so only at some point quite a bit later, and I, can't, I really can't remember what, I have to go back and look, did we come up with the idea that we had a website and we could post articles throughout the week and then collect them into an issue. Mm. And that's been our process for many, many years now. Um, and that I'm trying to think. At some point, Glenn Fleischman wrote wrote our content management system. It's called the Tibbetts Publishing System in Perl, and it was it was wonderful. It did exactly what we wanted, but it was also very brittle because it did exactly what we wanted and nothing else. And but that was one of the concepts we had, which was that you could publish and edit everything live, but at some point you like push a button and it collects all the stuff that hasn't yet been published. And right. and builds this email issue, and it spit it out in different formats and things like that, so we could we could post in different places, and so we really did sort of feel our way into what we have now. Yeah, and you know every every publication 
that continues to have issues still does that. I mean, you know, you can still, I believe it or not, you can go buy a printed copy of the New York Times uh, every day. <laughs> yes. And my parents are unhappy about the sun, not getting the Sunday Times right now. <laughs> <laughs> Howard Stern had a funny bit where he, his, his parents are obviously a bit older and his, his dad... <laughs> His dad is reading the New York Times, and Howard Stern is a famous germaphobe. He wants him to read it with the gloves on. He's like, God damn it, Howard, I'm not reading the New York Times with gloves on. Uh, I've always told my, my favorite story, it's a total aside, but I, can't, I, I will never not tell this story. Is I was at Starbucks at this point. I think I first told it on the show with Glenn, and Glenn, of course, you when you get to the punchline, will love it. But probably about four or five years ago at this point, not too long ago, but four or five years, I'm at Starbucks. I'm waiting for my drink, and uh, you order, and then you go over to the place where you wait. And there's two young women. I would I would guess you know late college, you know twenty one ish, two of them, and the it was a Sunday. And there was one of them had bought the New York Times at the Starbucks and she was explaining it to the other girl. And the other young woman had obviously really wasn't familiar with the printed newspapers. And she was like, wait, they, they do this every day? And then she goes, well, the Sunday one is thicker, but yes, every single day. And then the other, the other young woman said, why would they do that? <laughs> And I was just so blown away. I was like, you know what? When you really think about it, and you're like, you think about like how much goes into it. It's it is an insane amount of work. And if you're you, you know, it's kind of crazy. Really, why would why would you put all that work into into having to make all your text and graphics fit into print right. when you can just have it on the web where it doesn't matter? Right. And and as successful as the Times in particular, you know, a couple of the newspapers have done a trend. Tr terrific job and they're they're i wouldn't say anybody's thriving in today's literally today's media landscape with the, with the quarantine and all the stuff that's going on but in general at the start of 2020 the new york times and the washington post and the wall street journal which 25 50 years ago were very well regarded successful newspapers continued to thrive in the internet age but they all had rocky transitions from the today's paper to the hey wait we have an article at four in the afternoon and it's ready to yes. go and it's big news. What do we do? You know, do we, yeah. do you hold it for tomorrow? Uh, yeah. So I'm always interested and, and, how, how something like Tidbits, which had that weekly mindset, made the transition. And, and to this day, it's a little awkward. So whenever Apple announces something on a Monday, mm. it drives me up the wall. Right. Because I feel like it has to be in the issue because otherwise, it may, it'll be on the website, no question, but it'll wait a week. Yeah. And, you know, to get back to what we were talking about earlier with the email newsletters, I mean, we have uh, about 24,000 subscribers now. And I think the majority of them really see tidbits as a, a weekly newsletter. Mm. That's that's how they see it. They do not see it as a website. and And, you know... Honestly, they've been with us for a long time. I mean, we have people who've literally been subscribing for 20, 25, 30 years. I mean, the bulk of our subscribers actually came because of the Internet Starter Kit in 1993 and 94. So, so there's that sense that, yeah, we're still a little weird and old in that regard, but it's also where my core is. Yeah. 
and and I'm not going to I'm not going to disappoint them. You know that that these are people who that they've figured out how they want to read information. And email newsletters are hard to beat. They've come around on the guitar, but it's, you know, for these people, that's just the way it's always been. And, I mean, we've actually had features on our website um, at various times over, over our history that would allow you to get a back issue via email. You could email it to yourself because people wanted it in their email. <laughs> I remember, I remember when IMDb was email. You would, you would send IMDb an email with something like a query in the subject, and then they would email you back with the information from the movies that the query in their subject had done. And it was really useful. I remember taking film classes in college, and it was really useful because it was like you didn't really have to keep notes on like the, you know, oh, some old, you know, like rear window, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, 1956 or whatever year it was. Well, it was like that you didn't have to keep notes. You had it. It was right there in your email. You know, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> there was, I mean, that was in fact how our sponsorship stuff started. It was email autoresponders. Right. You could send email to a particular address at tidbits.com, and you would get, you know, whatever you wanted back from that. And needless to say, this was before spam. Yeah. I mean, literally before spam. <laughs> before it ever occurred to anyone. Uh, yeah. Let me say this to wrap up, and, and this is a dangerous question as a wrap-up <laughs> question. <laughs> but if we can do it concisely, I'm curious as to your thoughts. And, and it's this. Why, why Apple? Why, why the focus on Apple? Hmm. So in 1990, when we started this, Tanya and I had been using Macs for a couple years. I had an SE30. I had built my own hard drive. Um, it's an SE30, so I had an I had a 13-inch Apple Color display as a second monitor. I've had second displays since the very beginning. Um, it was the right topic that had a void that needed filling. Um, and let me see if I can explain that. Things happened on the internet back in those days because they needed to, because they because there was a solution that did not yet exist. And if you saw one of those and you could fill it, you did. And what I, you know, I have this degree in hypertextual fiction and ancient Greek and whatnot from Cornell and i i loved it but it was academic you know it was it was fun um i i was under no i mean professor wanted me to apply for a mellon fellowship and go to grad school and i was like you know i love this but it's not a career you have to wait for people to die to get a job in this field and what i loved doing was playing around with the computer and not playing games on the computer, but playing around with the computer. And, I mean, res edit right. and F edit and, you know, figuring out how things worked. I mean, you talked about laser writers. I mean, laser writers could be controlled programmatically with PostScript. It was a language. And, 
it was this incredible real-world colossal cave where all of these twisty little passages were just there to be explored. And what I wanted to do was explore them and share that. And it, it was, I mean, Apple was just, it was... And I don't think I actually knew that much about the company at this point. It was just this Mac that was in front of me that I could get into in so many ways and and share what I could find. And so that's, I think, why. I mean, that's that's sort of the longer, more abstract answer. The really short answer is that it was Tanya's idea. <laughs> she was working at microcomputers and office systems at Cornell, the, the group that sold computers. But this is also the group that sold copiers and fax machines. And so her coworkers were not computer people. They really had very little idea how to sell computers. And and her, her position was new technologies consultant. And so she sold Macs and Next machines and things like that. And she was frustrated that her coworkers didn't really know very much about what was going on in the industry. And so she decided that she was going to use her PageMaker skills, um, left over from being in the Mac user group and being the newsletter editor, um, to do a little newsletter for her coworkers about what was going on in the industry. And so she comes home one day and tells me that she's had this idea. And I was like, that's a great idea. I'll help you do it. Again, void to be filled. Um, but I want to put it in HyperCard because HyperCard was the coolest thing ever at that point in time. And I just loved trying to figure out how to do stuff in it. And um, the PageMaker print version lasted two weeks. <laughs> Um, before I don't even remember why it was, it just was deemed too much work or they didn't appreciate it or whatever. Um, and the rest is history, but it was, it was just what we wanted to do. And, and I, and I, I mean, maybe you've had this too, but it was something we could do together. Mm. I mean, like this was, this is very much a joint effort. Um, I mean, Tanya doesn't deal with the day-to-day of tidbits anymore, except on the on the kind of the financial financial aspect of things, but she certainly knows what's going on, and I can talk to her about any article or any topic at any moment, um, and she knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so just the ability to share that with some, be able to share that experience with someone was unbeatable. And, you know, I I guess unusual. I didn't know what it was at the time because I was young and it was all I knew. Yeah. But, you know, we, we were just, you know, in it together um, the whole way. Well, that's a good answer. Uh, let's end it right there. That's fantastic. I thank <laughs> you so much for your time. Here's the 30 more years. No pressure. I, I, people have said that and I'm like, I'll be 82. Yeah, that's good. Like, I really don't know about 82. Although I have to say we have a Tibbis reader who's 102 now. So... 82 sounds like kind of easy. Right. Uh, my uh, thanks to our sponsors, Squarespace, Linode, and Feels. And uh, my thanks to Adam Inks at tidbits.com. And, uh, uh, of course, on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Adam Inks. All right. I'm Adam Inks just about everywhere. Yeah. There's only one more of me on the internet. Well, my thanks to you. <laughs> I got to go. Thanks, Adam. It's been wonderful. Uh, anytime.